you end up just talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the extract universe. that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist to think of objects not as single things but has been made up of many constituents. You all know I made me hate science. When you're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what, uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist. Hey, everybody. You are on Natural Reaction for our second last episode ever. And I don't know, I'm sad. Sad, but it's good. It's good sad. We've actually had a bunch of people contact us. And I'm just, I'm, I'm loving the love that we've been mm. getting the last couple of weeks. We're just saying outside, uh, off air. That it feels like we may be like the Velvet Underground, where we only had a thousand listeners, but every one of them started their own radio show. <laughs> and I'm so fine with yeah. that. Or um, became a scientist. Either one. I'm fine with either. So those sweet voices you're hearing right there is Izzy. He's in the studio again, as always. We've got Nadia. Hi. She's chilling. Howdy. And I'm Jacinta. And we actually do have a special guest in the studio as well. Um, we've got Jake Clark, a PhD student with the Astrophysics... At Physics group? Yeah, that was right. That's it, yeah. <laughs> um, at the University of Southern Queensland. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me, Jacinda. The uh, ride down from uh, T-Bar was great. Smooth sailing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. I was like, yeah, you know, he'll be here soon. Like, no worries. And then I was like, oh, I yeah, know you actually live ages away. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about what you do with planets. Cool. Yeah, I yeah. can do that. Well, all of the fun stuff. We won't do it right now, obviously, but um, uh, we will be talking about that today. No. What's a planet right now? Go tell me. No. <laughs> <laughs> Pop quiz. <laughs> Three Definitely not Pluto. <laughs> oh, oh, too oh, too soon, man. Broke too soon. I have, a, I have a shirt that says "It's okay, Pluto. I'm not a planet either." And I bought it like eight years ago, and it's still so relevant. <laughs> Nadia, what are you talking about today? I was going to talk about the different colors of blood. Oh. That's metal. It is. Blood can come Literally in a variety metal. of colors that basically represent the spectrum of the rainbow. Oh, it's not just red. No. So what color would you, what, what animal would you need to kill to have like yellow blood? Uh, insects. Ah. So particular insects. Uh, certain arthropods. Uh, cockroaches have orange blood. Uh, yeah. Um, some animals have blue blood. Some have purple what, blood. What, what's the definition of blood? Because I, I've always heard insects... Described as having interstitial fluid rather than blood. So arthropods or invertebrates have um, hemolymph, yeah. which is analogous to blood in vertebrates, which is like yep. our blood. Um, but basically, it's like in constant contact with the organs and surrounding tissues. Yeah, they don't have lungs. Uh, so the ver- like how we think of blood is completely different yeah. in yeah. those animals. But yes. we'll talk about that. We'll more. talk. Yeah, we, we should probably we'll, do that. We'll, we'll delve actually into talk that. About blood. Yeah. Izzy, what are you talking about? Oh, I'm talking about. Lead in Iceland ice, uh, Greenland ice, and silver in Rome. And that'll, yeah. make more, uh, and, that'll, oh. and that'll make more sense when we get there. I wrote down, what did I write? Icy coin production, yeah, which I thought was... That's pretty, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice little short version. Ice cold. Yeah. There's a lot of that happening up in Toowoomba. Yeah? Coin production. Oh, ice. Oh, ice. <laughs> ice coin production. Ice, yeah, okay, fair. Yeah, that was a darker than I thought it was. <laughs> Terrible. Um, and then I, if we've got time, I'm going to discuss hippo poo. And that's all I'm going to give you until the end of the show. So get ready for that. You're a natural reaction here on Zed Digital. We're here for another week. We're talking all about rainbow blood, I think. Oh, we're talking about all the colors that blood can come. Yeah. In. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming blood is never rainbow. Like, unless you got all of the blood from the different creatures and put it together. What about leprechaun's blood? Ah, yeah. there we go. Leprechaun blood. I imagine it would be sparkly, a bit of glitter in. Surely, I feel like they're human I, I, enough that I, they... No, it's just whiskey. They just bleed whiskey. <laughs> no, in, in reality, if Delicious. you had a um, unicorn 
it would probably be red blood because it would be a vertebrate. And I well, that's sad. No, nah, no, unicorn's blood is based off mercury. It comes out very silvery. Uh, <laughs> why Maybe. are you all acting like I'm weird for making this up? Like you guys don't know this either. <laughs> no, but if we were to assume that unicorns were a real thing i.e. something like a rhino, which is most likely where the mythology originated from, is some horned creature many, many years ago, chances are the blood would be red. Yeah. Um, they are The only vertebrates that don't have red blood are a bunch of skinks. And I came across this article uh, from Louisiana State University that actually did a study on a group of skinks. Um, they are, what are they? They are Prasianomhema, um, and it's a genus of skinks that have very bright green blood. Oh. Can we see a photo? Uh, yes. So their tongues and their muscles and all of that have a green little tinge. Aww. They're very cute little skinks. Look at them. They're pretty adorable. They are pretty adorable. He's got his mouth open. It looks like he's like frozen for the photos. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and these researchers out of you. Uh, Louisiana State University were doing an evolutionary comparison and investigation to see when this green blood arose and um, what's actually in it. Now, this the reason why the blood is green is because there's this pigment um, that's caused by a bile buildup. So in humans, we have bile. And this pigment basically in these lizards builds up to such massive levels that it's essentially analogous to jaundice. Wow. Yeah. So in humans, that amount of bile would be toxic. And yeah. the um, this is called uh, biliverdin. And that's the... So this is this toxic substance called biliverdin, which gives these skinks the green blood color. Yeah. So so why is it okay for the skinks? What Do they have any benefits? They believe it's some form of evolutionary adaptation that has provided them some form of benefit. Now, the reasons are unknown as evolution you know, does. Mm. Uh, but I thought it was a really interesting article because when you think of blood, you don't think of all these different colors that can come in. Now, there are other parasites and everything that do have green blood, but these skinks are unusual in that they are vertebrate that also contain blood. Now, the majority of vertebrates, virtually all vertebrates, contain red blood. And the reason for that is because of hemoglobin. So hemoglobin is a... Um, it's a protein that's present on the surface of our blood cells. And basically, it's four globular protein subunits that are joined together. And in the middle of the subunit is a heme group. And this heme group contains an iron uh, molecule, which binds to oxygen. So our blood cells are covered in hemoglobin. And these hemoglobins are our oxygen-carrying uh, what are they? Oh, well, oxygen-carrying groups. Got yeah. iron. The iron is the important thing for carrying the oxygen. And if you guys want to quickly think to like, rusty nails and such, you'll remember that when iron interacts with oxygen, it, it goes, goes red. red. Ah. Ah. There you go. Yes, so uh, in humans, uh, blood is bright red when it's been oxygenated. But then when it loses its uh, oxygen group and becomes deoxygenated, it appears to be a more dark red maroon color. And this is why you have a difference in like the look of your, the of your color of your blood from like an artery. If, say if you cut your artery, please don't cut your arteries. Um, <laughs> Thanks for the advice. Yeah, a uh, real fun fact Give for you there. The <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. quick public service announcement: don't cut your arteries. But if you were to, you'll notice that the blood is much darker because it's coming uh, away 
from your uh, heart, I believe, towards your lungs again, and to get reoxygenated and get to that nice, comfortable, that nice red, That's bright red color. Yeah. So these skinks actually also have um, hemoglobin in their blood. What makes it unusual is all this uh, biliverdin bile buildup, essentially, that gives it the green color. Um, but you get a lot of other arthropods and invertebrates that also have green blood. And basically what's responsible for that is another uh, pigment-carrying protein called chlorocuronin. Mm-hmm. And it's in a lot of segmented worms and leeches and marine worms. So they don't have hemoglobin or this uh, biliverdin pigment. It's all chlorocuronin. Now, these skinks don't have this chlorocuronin uh, pigment, but other animals with green blood do. So these skinks are pretty cool and unusual, uh, but what's even more awesome is that some animals have blue blood. Like octopuses. Yes, octopuses. And horseshoe crabs. And arthropods. And the reason why... So that means that if they went, if you opened up, they don't have that oxygen component, so it wouldn't... They don't have an iron. They, they might, the they'll, pop, they'll still have something that carries oxygen, and I think in the case of octopuses, and I don't want anyone to quote me on this, it might be copper. You are correct. Uh, Mate, look at you. Thus giving it the blue colour rather than the red colour. That's yeah. cool. So, well, actually, um, so octopuses don't have hemoglobin, but they have a similar thing called hemocyanin. And it's similar to hemoglobin, but instead of iron molecules, it's got two copper molecules that bind to oxygen. And hemocyanin is a respiratory pigment like hemoglobin and chlorocuronin uh, in mollusks, so such as snails and slugs, as well as in octopuses and squids. It's also found in some arthropods like crabs and lobsters. And like insects, octopuses don't have blood per se, but they have this hemolymph which is like a bloody type liquid. <laughs> a bloody type liquid. <laughs> a bloody type liquid, uh, which is also cool. Uh, Can't blo- believe it's not blood. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, you can also get some arthropods that have violet blood. Really? Yeah. So it's also from a type of hemolymph, and it's found in marine invertebrates, and their pigment-carrying component is called hemerythrin. And that's their respiratory pigment. And the pigment is actually colorless when it's deoxygenated, but then turns this pink-violet color when it comes into contact with oxygen. So I'm trying to find some pictures of this, crazy. Of this purple blood. Of the purple blood. <laughs> and then, like I mentioned earlier, you can get yellow and orange hemolymph, mostly in insects uh, and um, small worms. So interestingly, sea cucumbers often have this yellow type of hemolymph and they basically extract vanadium from seawater and that gets concentrated in their bodies and then it becomes yellow when it's oxygenated. That's so cool. So the cool thing is these respiratory pigments all essentially have a very similar function in what they are doing and that's providing oxygen uh, to the organism in one way or another. But the way it's evolved and the way these different proteins bind to the oxygen, like for example with hemocyanin uh, having the copper binding to the oxygen versus hemoglobin where you have iron binding to oxygen. It's very cool how evolution makes a way to uh, process the same thing using different uh, mechanisms. Yeah, Life. Life. We'll find a way. But yeah, so blood comes in many, many different colors, not just red. And interestingly, humans can have disorders which change 
changes the color of their blood. Oh. So some humans can get green blood. What? Um, through, That's messy. Through a disorder called self-hemoglobinemia. That's okay. a bit of a mouthful. Huh. And it causes the blood to appear green. So in this condition, sulfur has actually joined onto the hemoglobin molecules. And it forms this green chemical called self-hemoglobin. That doesn't sound like a great thing to have around the body, though. No. Is um, this something like happens to you, like, genetically you have an issue? Or, like, do you just have too much sulfur in your blood and it just starts... You're a demon. Yeah, it just starts, <laughs> <laughs> You get possessed one day. You know how it is. Blood smells like eggs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, but just, just, so, yeah, does the sulfur just become attached to the hemoglobin? Or does, like, is there so a... So it's caused by exposure to high doses of certain medications and chemicals. Okay. So a long-term overdose of sumatriptan, my pronunciation's so off today. Anyway, so migration medication uh, causes one of these green blood disorders. Whoa, my great, my sorry, migraine. migraine medication. I think I have to go on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm getting green blood. <laughs> yeah, so it's a migraine medication, and it also goes under the name of Limitrix, and it belongs to a group of chemicals known as sulfonoamides. And obviously an overdose, basically what it does is the sulfur attaches to oxygen and it's not good, but over time your red blood cells get rid of it and do eventually overturn this green blood. It can't be treated by anything. You may need to get a transfusion if you do have this green blood disorder. Oh my lord. I seem to recall sulfur, like sulfur sulfur onamides as well being used as like antibiotics before we had really widely available antibiotics i i would need to look at the history but they they does have a, they do have a history of medical use huh crazy but then so did gunpowder so <laughs> and cocaine and co- it was, cocaine still used a little bit there is still medical cocaine but it's like only for nasal surgeries basically uh in your oh. hang on what yeah there is still medical cocaine it's called something else because like <laughs> it you never you rarely keep them the names the same but, uh, but doesn't it do the opposite? Like, no, it doesn't cocaine lead to no surgeries? I mean, yeah, but like it also makes the the passageways very numb if you wanna if you wanna cut them open okay, and start. Right. It's, it's used as an anesthetic, not no, as. I a... mean, you might as well, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get your nose cut open, like. I mean, yeah. What if it goes wrong? Why what? does this show always end up talking about drug use? Uh, it's because human history is entirely entwined, with it. yeah, with drug use. You're in Natural Reaction here on Z Digital, and we have a guest in the studio. It's PhD student with the Astrophysics Group at the University of Southern Queensland, Jake Clark. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me. He's already been here for the last uh, 20 minutes, but we'll yeah. introduce you again. Now we're doing questions. <laughs> yes. Uh, so can you tell us what you do? Brilliant. Okay, so I'm a, a PhD student, and uh, what I do is I'm a planet explorer and discoverer. So that sounds uh, pretty fancy. It's pretty fancy, and it's such a re- it's a good uh, good uh, gig. So, so I discover you explore space. I discover planets and time <laughs> and time. Yeah, and I'm just time lord. <laughs> I'm not. A, give me three years, and I'll be a doctor, not oh, the okay. doctor. Okay, but you'll be a doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's doctor time lord. Doctor <laughs> doctor time lord. Doctor space and time. <laughs> and so I discover planets, and then I try and work out what those planets are then made out of. Okay. Can I? Is it a bad question to ask how many planets you've discovered? Um, I've assisted in the discovery of three so wow, far. Wow, that's and more so... than I thought you were going to say. I've been like, oh, no, no, yet. no, not yet. <laughs> have, have you slipped your name or like some sort of 
record, like some sort of mark onto the naming of these planets yet in some small way? No, they've all got boring names. Um, and so planets are named after their stars and the stars are named after sort of the catalogs that... So, you know, 100 to 150 odd years ago, you had people that more or less just got paid to stare at the night sky and just find stars. And so... Um, the three planets that I've discovered are all under the Henry Draper catalogue, and that was um, stars that were catalogued under the Henry Draper Observatory. And so you had one person that went, all right, well, this is HD1, and this is HD2, and then they just scanned the whole sky. And so um, the planets that I've discovered are two around HD33844. And so you have HD33844B, and then HD33844C, and then you also have um, another one on, uh, sorry, orbiting around HD six seven six two ninety. Always get it around the wrong way, so <laughs> it's so hard to remember. I mean, yeah. if you can't remember it, I don't feel bad about not knowing the names of the planets. I, like. I feel like you've they've managed to make something very cool very boring. They have. <laughs> Why can't you just call them? I don't know. Bob, though. It would be really hard It'd be to a like, lot of Bob's. recall. It'd be Bob planet seven two six. Face. <laughs> planet face. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that would totally happen if you could crowdsource names. Uh. <laughs> um, so, what is TESS? TESS. So, uh, TESS is a very exciting uh, space-based telescope, which NASA just launched uh, this month. Oh, it's and this month. That's cool. So, it uh, launched on the... Th- oh, sorry. 17th of April. So, last last month, I should say. Mm. Just, the months fly by, don't they? They do. It's incredible. Don't, don't talk old. to me about it. Don't <laughs> yeah. say that. No, we don't want to talk about it. And so... <laughs> It's the next generation of a uh, planet of a planet finding telescope, and NASA's previous t- uh, planet finding telescope called Te- Kepler has found about two thirds of the planets discovered so far. So in the la- in the last twenty five years, we have discovered around about three and a half thousand planets orbiting around stars in the night sky with this Kepler telescope. And so Kepler's discovered around about two two and a half thousand. Okay, so like you know. So the vast majority. So yeah. the vast majority, but TESS is very, uh, very unique in the sense that Kepler was a mission to just stare at one part of the night sky, night sky, and then it sort of stuffed up. So its reaction wheels were sort of a bit skew if, and then it started looking at different parts of the sky, which is great because then you can find <laughs> out, you know, sort of short, uh, short orbital period planets. So we've discovered planets that have periods of like, sorry, years of like days or even hours. Wow. They are incredibly close to their stars. Um, but TESS is going to look at about 85% of the night sky. And so it's mm. going to be looking at the southern hemisphere first, and then it's going to look at the northern hemisphere. And what's exciting is that uh, USQ has the only dedicated observatory in the southern hemisphere. Take that, Canberra. Mm. So I'm throwing some shade yeah, down, there, down yeah. there. Um, that can help NASA achieve its mission of discovering these planets and confirming them because the telescope up in space finds little dips in the starlight as the planet sort of orbits around that star. And then so the way that we discover the planets is that we look at the star wobbling backwards and forwards. So here's something that you, you may or may not know is that we don't actually orbit the sun. <laughs> But yeah, okay. Mind blown. Um, I seem to remember like a lot of very intense arguments happening in Yeah, actually the science alert <laughs> comment um thing had one of those at one point. Like Yeah, like Jupiter isn't orbiting around the sun, like, oh my god, what's gonna happen? Like the future of our solar system. But what what okay. what really is going on is if you can imagine a 
elephant and yourself on a seesaw. Now, you're strapped onto that seesaw so you don't fly off, but if you, that little middle bit's called the fulcrum, and if you move that towards the elephant, what's going to happen is that you're going to sort of level out. Yeah. And if, once you level out at that point, that's called the center of mass. And so we actually orbit around that point. Or the Earth orbits around that big elephant called the Sun. So we don't technically orbit around the Sun. We orbit around the center of mass. Yes, that's okay. correct, of the system. Um, and so it takes a year for the Earth to go around that point, and it takes a year for that Sun to go around the point as well, if it was just the Earth and the Sun in our solar system. And so that's how we um, indirectly discover these planets using this um, so observatory. So the tiny wobbles of the planet, of, so the, of, of the suns. Of the, of the stars. Stars. That yeah. would indicate that there is like a centre of mass of the system isn't in the centre of the sun? or, or Inside the star, that's yeah, right. So if yeah. the star's by itself, then it shouldn't be wobbling at all. It yeah. should just be um, stationary. So does that mean that it's easier to find giant planets than little ones? That's, that is correct. And so in the first sort of 10 to 15 years before we had Kepler, most of the planets we discovered were huge gassy Jupiters orbiting very, very close to their host star. And the um, planet that I helped discover, HD 76290, I'm going to call it Jeff from now get, on. Get, that stuff so, ta- get it Jeff's tattooed fine. on you. Old, uh, old Jeff. Um, old Jeffy boy. Is very unique in the sense that it's orbiting a very old star. So it's about seven years, sorry, seven years, seven billion years old. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't seem that old for a star, to be honest. <laughs> seven billion years old. And it more or less just passes through that star's atmosphere as it orbits around it. But then the orbit is so elliptical that it sort of shoots out past, the say, the orbit of Mars and then slings right back to um, pass that sun's atmosphere, that star's atmosphere. Wait, so you have a a gas giant that's actually passing through the atmosphere of its sun? Yes, yeah. Does it react in some way? Um, So... Just lose a bit of planet every time you go past? (laughs) And that's right. And so you can get the atmosphere sort of evaporate, um, and that's known as photoevaporation. And so there's a bit a theory to suggest that Mercury was once a giant planet um, because it has more iron content than, say, Earth and Mars and Venus does. And there's theories to suggest that maybe it's a, a dead core of a ancient gassy pl- world. Wow. Oh. Apparently, Mercury is not the hottest planet. It's no, Venus. Venus. It is Venus. And be- that's because Venus has this accelerated uh, greenhouse effect. And so the night side of, uh, sorry, the night side temperature and the day side temperature of Venus is roughly the same. Wow. Give or take a couple of uh, degrees. Wow. Can- because, uh, because all of the heat gets trapped into like, the planet. All, yeah, and all the heat gets trapped in. What? Greenhouse gases are on uh, make up sort of Venus's atmosphere. Like, are they? It's predominantly uh, CO two. CO two. So it is predominantly CO two. Okay. Just um, way more than Mercury, I imagine, and maybe so. That Mercury doesn't core. have much of an atmosphere at mm. all, and then Earth's uh, atmosphere is quite thin compared to the likes of Venus. But we've found so not, we collectively, as like the, as the community, I should say, <laughs> have, have we've discovered these oddball worlds um, that we call eyeball worlds. Yeah. And so they're really close to their star and so close that um, all of the tidal energy in that system is gone. So much so that the, its year is equal to its day. So a bit like this, the moon, we only see one side of it or one face okay. of that moon. And so in that system, that means that there's only one side of that planet that is facing that 
sun, yeah. and then there's the other side of it that never sees that so sun. You, you have a permanent day side and a permanent night side. That's right. And then so that that uh, sun side would be like if it's a terrestrial planet like a cell, like ours would be like a magma world. <laughs> so you'd have like on one side Mustafa from like Star Wars, or like yeah, the old lava world, and then the other other side you'd probably have something like Hoth. Wow. <laughs> That just got nerdy real fast. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, so what I was going to ask is actually, so how hard is it to find an exoplanet? Like you've got these, you've got the, you look at the stars, you're going, all right, we're looking for the wobble. Is it, can you literally pick any star and find a planet? Um, so the way that we do it um, and the way that's going to be for the next couple of years is that NASA is going to send down some alerts saying, hey, we think some planets are around this star, this star, this star, this star. You, you go make sure that 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 uh, that signal is correct. Yeah. But you just more or less have a survey and just say, hey, we're going to survey 100 to 1,000 different stars and we're going to look at them at every, you know, every night and we're going to just pump away for the next eight hours that night and just look at that one and move over to this one and move over and over. And then just by statistics, you'll eventually come across a planet. And unfortunately, um, the way that those systems are sort of... So the geometric position of them. You might not be able to see systems, but then you might see other systems. Mm. Um, but it is easier to find the bigger planets than it is the smaller planets. Uh, technology is get, is vastly improving, and the sensitivity is improving tenfold. But the trouble is, at the moment, is that if we want to try and find Earth-sized or Earth-mass um, worlds, is that we're almost burying into the noise of the... Uh, stellar signal and so you have sunspots which are sort of dark patches on the sun's surface and those spots can be found on other stars as well and they can mimic planetary signals Uh. and the closest planet so I'm doing bunny ears at the moment (laughs) um, is Proxima Centauri Uh, so that's about four light years away from us and there's new evidence to suggest that the signal that they found isn't really a planet at all, and it's more no. so, sort of um, stellar noise. So you mm. think about all of the research that has gone into studying the atmosphere or studying the geology of that world or thinking about the habitability of that world is all redundant now because <laughs> some Wally has published uh, the wrong data. So once you've, say, discovered a planet, you figure out what it's made from, and I'm guessing through spectroscopy techniques? That is correct. Um, and not... It's really hard to find the spectroscopic properties of the planets at the moment just because it's... I mean, you, the precision needed at the moment is incredible. So you can look at the atmosphere of really big Jupiter worlds, but what you really want to do is you want to look at the smaller worlds. You want to look at a big terrestrial beast like super-Earths or um, little smaller, rockier worlds like Earth-like planets. Um, but the way that I do it is that if you have those two measurements of looking at the star, the starlight dipping, that tells you the planet's size. If you look at that wobble, that wobble tells you the planet's mass. If you have the planet's size and the planet's mass, you then have an overall density of that planet. And so you can make some assumptions on, oh, well, if that density is roughly the same as rock, then that planet must have, have some rock, some <laughs> rock in it, right? Um, but that sort of gives you a, a first order um, degree of accuracy. But what you can do is you can look at what metals are inside that star. 
and every single element has a unique barcode in spectroscopy. So you get the starlight, you then break it up into the different colors, and then you have barcodes depending upon what metals are in that star. And the those specific barcodes of iron and silicon and magnesium can really tell you how big is that planet's core or how big is that planet's atmosphere. And you can break that degeneracy right down to the point of almost trying to work out what sort of atmosphere it has and so on. So going back to when you mentioned that Proxima Centauri might just be an artifact of interstellar background noise, how does that, coupled with, say, the spectroscopy and all the information we have on it so far, relate, I guess? Um, that's an excellent question. And there's not a, there is research to look at the stellar activity and relating that to planetary signals. But we really need to understand a lot better how stellar activity like um, sunspots like uh, solar flares and so on and so forth, can they mimic planetary activity? And if so, by how much? Can we uh, mine that out of our data? Like, how can we we better scrutinize this data set to make sure that this is a planet and not just some sort of uh, background noise that the star's inducing? Hmm. So, like, for people at home thinking, like, just if you can sort of predict a bit more you have a bit more information about what this this sort of noise looks like, you can better tune it out of your data. And sort of ignore it a bit more. Uh, it's, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Um, I just find it really interesting, though, that like you know, from what uh, a lot of people see of planets, you know, Alpha Centauri is a really good example, right? The the really cool pictures, pictures, the really cool drawings we saw, illustrations of illustrations of um what the planet um, Alpha Centauri B or whatever it was called could yep. could look like, you know, and for like. To see those planets, you go, oh, that's amazing, you know. But it is pretty crazy that you're looking at, like, the wobble of a star to work out what that planet looks like and, like, how it how it would act and everything. Like, I saw this great tweet of this person saying, like, what I study and, like, what people expect to see is a beautiful thing. And what you actually see is it's, like, it's literally, like, a piece of light with a couple of, like, <laughs> pixels on it. And, like, that to me is crazy like that it's such a small thing like but I don't it, know. It, it's really hard for us because you know we're monkeys with simian brains trying to like <laughs> conceptualize a distance that you just you were not built to understand like we, no. we are literally just uh it is beyond our biological uh constraints to like properly conceptualize just how far away these things are well even the distance between us and the moon you can yeah. fit all of the planets in the solar system between the distance of Earth to the Moon, and it's it's an incredible distance. Yeah. But that's just a, a little speck, a little micrometer in the cosmic uh, ruler, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, going back to what you were saying, with you know, you just see that little dip of light, or you see that little star wobble. Like, ah, but at <laughs> the, there is technology at the moment where we can directly image planets orbiting around distant stars. So this is something I would got to, I wanted to ask you about. So how is Tess one of these uh, planetary images? Unfortunately not. No. So you need humongous telescopes. Yeah. You need um, you need technology on those telescopes to perturb the, the atmosphere signal. of Sorry, Earth's atmosphere to just make sure that you got the starlight there. And then what you have to do is you have to sort of subtract that starlight 
and with some almost black magic. <laughs> and then what you'll get is um, you'll have little sort of bright spots of where the planets are, and then you sort of map that over days or months or years, and you can actually see those planets orbiting around. But that's that technology, unfortunately, is biased towards really young solar systems with really big planets, and they're really, really hot. Um, they're just sort of still condensing down from the solar system from the st- that formation of the solar system and so they're emitting a lot of heat so that's what you're actually seeing when, unfortunately you wouldn't be able to do that with our solar system okay per se. but when you say they're young planets are we observing them when they're young like are they cur- like how far away are they are they currently young sorry i should yes they are currently young okay and so the best thing about astronomy is that it's a time machine right yeah. so light takes a certain um, time to get from place to place and so light years, if you're looking at an object 100 light years away, you're seeing it as it was 100 years ago. If you're seeing something you know, uh, 50 million light years away, then you're seeing it as it once was when the dinosaurs stood on this earth um, which I think is quite incredible. Yeah. But yeah, so definitely looking at them as they were. What makes you excited about space? Oh, what doesn't? Yeah, what doesn't make me excited <laughs> about space? You know, what doesn't make me excited about space is um, I don't know if I can say this, but the, the so Australia announced a space agency oh, this yeah. year. Let's, I want to go down that road. Let's, let's talk about this. Can, this should be no, fun. We can we can talk about this. Um, and Just don't defame anybody. So <laughs> we got people are talking about fifty million dollars of funding for the startup of this Australian space agency, but there's I think twenty five million that's going towards if you can demonstrate that you can build projects that align with the Australian um, core business, uh, sorry, the government's core business, then you'll get more funding. But then there's like, I think, $23 million for the startup of the space agency over the next four years. And so that's about six and a half million to $7 million to start up a space agency in Australia. So and it's a, a couple it's of buildings and mm. uh, some employees. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'll pay for a social media team. <laughs> but, I mean, it's a, fanta- it's a fantastic start and it looks like that they want to develop... They don't want to do sort of planetary science. Which I'm a little bit bummed about, but that's fine. But it's more uh, developing uh, so- satellite technology to bump up CubeSats into the atmosphere to monitor... So into the atmosphere, into space to monitor uh, crops, to monitor bushfires, um, which I think is oh yeah, all good cool. stuff, great stuff. Yeah. all gr- all good stuff that we need for Australia. So um, it is different to what I thought the space agency was going to be, but hopefully, you know, with jobs and growth, it will uh, <laughs> it will get bigger and better in the future. See, that was fine. We're all yeah. good. We're all good. We're all happy. So growing up, um, I'm guessing obviously wanting to study the universe has probably been a big thing for you. What were your expectations of being like a planet discoverer as a kid versus what you do now? I I, I don't know. I, I couldn't look at five-year-old Jake and be like, you knew exactly where you're going. <laughs> um, I, I guess when or, I was in year... When I was about three, five years old, I loved planets and I loved space and... All of my like free reign projects would be, you know, making a model of the atmosphere, or making a model of the solar system, or studying about the universe. But then that sort of died down when I was in high school, and I wanted to join um, the air force. I wanted to become a pilot to become an astronaut. But then discovered that I was too tall to be a, 
a pilot and thus too Aww. tall to be an astronaut <laughs> and then dream ruined. And then it came to like year 12, the last day that you had to pick your courses for uni. And I'm like, bugger, what do I do? What do I do in my life? Um, and then I'm like, oh, I like, I like physics. I like space. So I looked up space physics because <laughs> I didn't realize that, I didn't realize astrophysics was even a thing. Um, <laughs> And then I see space science and astrophysics at Adelaide Uni. I'm like, all right, that's that's me. I, that's it. I'll do that. And so I got in. And then uh, first semester, I didn't do all that well in at all. And I got dragged into the head professor of astrophysics. He dragged me into his office and said, hey, look, your grades are a bit sort of skew if Have you thought about doing something else? Oh, <laughs> and then I'm like, you know what? I'm going to prove to you that I can do it. And so got through, uh, got through my bachelor, got through honors, and then I was completely burnt out. I'm like, no, I don't want to even look at studying anymore. And then spent a year in pubs and clubs doing doing bar work. And then I was gonna say, like, you're just drinking, like, just, yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh my. That too. Let's not talk. <laughs> Let's not talk about That's that. That's a legitimate job. Um, and then I joined the science circus. So I did a master's in science communication down at ANU with Questacon, the National Science uh, and Technology Centre down there. So going around different parts of Australia presenting science shows to primary schoolers and high schoolers and had so much fun. Yeah, it sounds like that. Like, that honestly, pretty, I've, pretty, I've thought yeah. about doing the Questacon thing a couple of times because it looks like a year of amazing fun stuff. Like, hell I yeah. I would highly recommend. And then just the networks and opportunities you get from that. I mean, there's TV presenters that have gone through that course. There are amazing science communicators in museums and um, that network all, all across the world in Australia. So it's just a fantastic gig if you get the opportunity to do it. And then Quester at the end of that... Con, he said, yeah. <laughs> writing it down. <laughs> I just Googled it. Um, and yeah, worked at Questacon for a bit and then got back into studying stars and... I'm oh, sorry, studying planets and... You're back into it now. You're like, all right, back I've, in done the game. My, mm. I've done my science communication. It's time. Back into science. But I love talking about science as much as doing it. And um, as my probably supervisor's like, you know, get back onto your work and actually do some science. <laughs> <laughs> probably spend too much time talking about it than actually ah, well, doing it. That's completely fine. I, I, as, as a science communicator, I'm like, yeah, no, that's, no, that's, yeah, that's, that's the way to go. We're yeah. cool. We're cool. Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital. And we're in the studio with Jake Clark talking about space and planets and space planets. <laughs> well, else do farm planets? Yeah. And know. Jeff. And Jeff, yeah. <laughs> and Jeff, our good yeah. friend Jeff. By the way, what's, what's Jeff made of? So Jeff is... Wait, wait, wait. If you guys have just tuned in, Sorry. Jeff is the planet that... Um, Jake has discovered one of the planets. one of the planets that Jake has I had a help in, in discovering. Yeah, um, but Jeff Jeff is your uh, stock standard big old gassy Jupiter, so <laughs> predominantly uh, hydrogen helium. Uh, I don't think there's been too much sort of spectroscopic analysis of old mate Je- um, Jeff. I mean, I'm sort of still early in my PhD. I've worked out what I'm going to do, and now it's just a matter of now going out and doing it. So my research will now be focused on the sort of smaller planets. So um, the most popular planet within our galaxy isn't even within our own solar system. Mm. And so the most popular planets are planets bigger than Earth and smaller than Neptune, and we have none of those worlds within our... What do you mean by popular? You mean, like, most common? So, sorry, yeah, the most common planets within our... Not, like, oh, it's, like, (laughs) Cosmic Idol. (laughs) Please vote for your favorite. Yeah, I was wondering, (laughs) is there there some, like, 
astronomer and astrophysics thing where like only you guys know about you all <laughs> vote for your favorite planets <laughs> no it's just everyone votes for pluto <laughs> yeah. oh <laughs> too real my, too my poor real. dude <laughs> of course my dude so um you're pretty far away from houston <laughs> yes just a little bit far away from yeah not, not astronomically houston. speaking no, not so, astronomically speaking. It's just uh, just down the road. Yeah, just have a left and jump, you know. That's yeah, true, actually. Now that you point that out. Um, so how many of these like sections? So you're like, you're working with NASA, which is kind of amazing. Yes. Uh, so assisting with their mission. Um, and so they'll go and say hey to organizations and universities that are sort of working with them and say hey, we have these stars that may have planets around them. Go check them out. Um, and so, at the moment, there's sort of like a to be, a planet to be confirmed. There needs to be follow up observations, either space based or ground based obs- um, observing. And but there's some cases where you can do some sort of statistical analysis and say, all right, well, that's like a ninety nine point nine nine percent probability that that is a planetary signal and nothing else. Um, but in most cases, we'll get given the stars to say, hey, go check them out, and we'll just follow them up. Cool. Yes, sir. No, sir. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just great because then you don't, you're not sort of hunting around stars being like, there, yeah, there could be a planet there. Yeah, like, I've got, got some wobble. It could be yeah. some sunspots. I'm not sure. <laughs> but you have sort of more concrete uh, guidance of where to point your telescope mm-hmm. to actually get a discovery in the first place, which is great. So when you're hunting for these stars, do you literally just sit and look at the telescope all day or is the telescope programmed to just output some data for you so you're not technically staring at these spots all day or are you uh all night i guess (laughs) all day and all night so what's great about the observatory that we've just built up at mount kent 25 kilometers uh south of toowoomba is it's all robotic and so you can pre-program during the night and say hey we want to stare at these stars for this long. Go check them out. And so it's still the observatory is still being built. We've got one of four telescopes and domes there now. And so I'm sort of talking about what is going to happen in the future. But it's exciting times. And as we're going to have a few little teething issues, as most things do uh, when you first build a you know multi-million dollar observatory but <laughs> yeah i've heard that's a bit of a, a bit it's of a bit project of an issue, you know <laughs> that's a bit of a project but that's actually a really good question like what kind of output are you getting from the are you getting a video of like this tiny star and the wobbling and then you like work it out or are you getting like like lines and lines of code from where that wobble might have moved or Ex- excellent question so what happens is that the light comes from the star it hits the telescope the light then goes through a fiber and hits what's known as a spectrograph and then so that's basically a really fancy prism splits all the light up into the wavelength components or splits it up into the different colors and then what we're actually looking at is we're looking at those barcodes and so you have between the spectrograph and sorry the way so sorry before it hits the computer you have a calibration element it's not mm. it's normally either iodine or thorium argon and so you know exactly what those wavelengths are of that barcode and you see those and they're a reference frame and then you see in the background the stars sort of barcode shift left to right left to right and because that shift in wavelength means a, a shift in speed 
and then that's how we detect that wobble. So we don't ah. detect that wobble directly. It's indirectly through that star's light. Cool. And then, so that's radio spectroscopy? So um, that is uh, called the radial velocity technique. And so then that change will then give you a velocity and then you have that velocity and you just sort of stamp that down and go, on that time, on that date, we have X And this velocity. change, we found this change in velocity here. Yes. And uh, so uh, planets, uh, sorry, uh, stars are orbiting around the Milky Way galaxy. And so you know, you need to know roughly what where it is in the night sky and where it is in um, our galaxy and then sort of subtract that uh, velocity away and then do a sort of few other sort of black magic uh, astronomy <laughs> calculations <laughs> calculations to then get the planetary signal out of that but yeah it's so that doable actually, that actually comes on really well to my next question which is what is your day to day uni life like or night to night I should night maybe <laughs> most of it is day to day which is great <laughs> but as the as Minerva Australis which is the observatory um, that's being built as it's now progressing I'll probably go to more late nights later on which I'm really really excited about I'm so excited about actually observing these stars it's one thing to just get some data from you know a huge telescope in Chile or in Hawaii but it's another to actually be like alright I'm getting my data from here and I, can, and I can actually see it being developed and processed right here right now and so I'm really excited about that but I do a lot of coding um, so astronomers and astrophysicists are known to be glorified programmers. <laughs> and so in my PhD, I'm developing a computer package for astronomers to, if they have these measurements of the how big that planet is, the, uh, how, much, how heavy that planet is, and sort of some elements of that star of magnesium iron and um, silicon, and then they can just sort of pull the handle, press play, and then that will sort of give you a probability of what that planet is made out of. So that's what I'm developing cool. at the moment. So a lot of time spending uh, in front of a screen, writing code, debugging code, getting angry with the <laughs> screen, wanting to throw something at the computer. Um, and currently right now my computer's been bricked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it because you threw something at it? No. <laughs> I had a software update and using Ubuntu, which is a um, uh, yes. Linux distribution, and just having some issues with that. But Or is that just what you're telling them that's when, what... <laughs> <laughs> when you threw something through it? That's what I'm telling the ICT department. <laughs> yeah. They're like, so what's this uh, this hole in the computer? I don't you're know. Like, oh. That's uh, heat escape. Yeah, <laughs> heat dump. <laughs> uh, but yeah, lots of coding. Um a couple of meetings here and there just to sort of work out what I'm doing with my PhD. A uh, bit of outreach activities as well. So I do a lot of outreach up in Toowoomba, which is fantastic. Um, and lots of reading papers and trying to really understand what's going on in the field because I've come from a background of looking at galaxies and looking at high-energy uh, electromagnetic radiation. And I haven't really done a lot of exoplanetary stuff prior to doing my PhD. So trying to brush myself up as best as I can on on the uh, prior knowledge. That's cool. Awesome. Makes sense. Um, I, I was kind of curious about the space agency stuff, but I think we might leave that for no, a little bit. No, 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 oh, you right. can do it. Like, how, as like someone in the Australian sort of field... Space in, space. Yes, yeah, space. <laughs> like, in the space space, yes. As, as, we call, as the cool kids call it. I, how do you feel about the prospects of a space agency I obviously like there's some excitement around it but do you think it's going to materialize anything special or real or like I don't know just what are your feelings <laughs> I hope so I'm I'm optimistic um I'm really excited about 
I I, ha- I did mention oh well it's only got like six and a half million over the next every year for the next yeah. four years. But there's a huge investment, I think two hundred and fifty million dollars in the uh, in this year's budget to develop satellite technology. This is like the two hundred I think I've got something here for two hundred and sixty million for the space based augmentation system. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah, it, it kinda looks like they want the the agency itself to be like this kind of body that investigates feasibility and ideas and stuff, but a lot of the actual funding comes from, I don't know, other, not necessarily their own budget. I'm not no, sure. I, I remember, I think, Scott Morrison saying that the lion's share, whatever that is, I guess the, the majority the f- funding yeah. of, um, of the agency will come from private uh, bodies, which is like, well... How do you feel about that? I, I, I feel as though government should brunt a bit... No, it's okay. You're I mean, a, you're, on, you're you, on community radio. <laughs> you're entitled to your opinion. Yeah. So with NASA, yes, for every dollar the U.S. government spends on NASA, NASA gives back to the government, I think, about seven to ten dollars. And this would be over like the the a number of years, and that's that's yeah. correct. And it's more towards their spin-off tech, but because and the astronomy. Uh, community is great in the sense that we're all open source and NASA is a government organization that has to give their data available so it has to have their data data made public so many good photos oh, it's, it's <laughs> incredible and so all the technology that they create then gets distributed to the public and then uh, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists then sort of jump on that tech and go like oh how can we make money off that and so then, then that's how it feeds into the yeah. economy I suppose there is an idea that Private, like the entrepreneurs and stuff are the ones who make the innovation, but that hasn't really been true if you look at the history of how like technology has worked. I feel like that's getting into an interesting topic. <laughs> yeah, well, we're just quickly, quickly, like, uh, for instance, like GPS and that, where you're saying, because you're saying that NASA makes its money back off the sort of spin off technology. Yes. But well, like, they don't actually make it. It's the yes, the economy multiplier. The economy generates it. The government taxes it. You know, yeah. you can kind of. I'm sure that their taxation department's own black magic calculations <laughs> um, comes you back with these numbers. But uh, it is. I think what you're trying to you're trying to get like a, the the importance of like that public investment in making new stuff is yeah. kind of important. And it just drives wonder and curiosity throughout the public as well. I mean, if you talk to NASA, to anyone in Australia or around the world, and they're like, oh, yeah, they're cool. They're a cool bunch of peeps. I don't think people would say that about ASIO or (laughs) (laughs) Treasury Office. Like, NASA is a government body which has an amazingly positive uh, uh, public attitude towards it. A great PR campaign, by the way, just everyone knows. Yeah. Even in like non-English speaking parts of the world, you go if you said like NASA, people would be like, yeah, yeah, NASA, I know NASA. Like, and you don't see many people with like ASIO mugs or <laughs> t-shirts. <laughs> well, ASIO doesn't produce as good pictures. No, no that, that's probably true. <laughs> so the big one, aliens. Aliens, yes. <laughs> um, aliens, my goodness. So I have my opinion is that we are not alone. Um, and it's sort of binary, right? There's only two options. We are we are alone or we're not alone. And both of those options are quite sort of scary. Plausible. And, uh, yeah, and plausible. And within our own solar system, we think there might be mo- microbial life forms 
in uh, some of Saturn's and Jupiter's moons. Re- really Possibly. quickly. While but they could be, right? Like there's, be. there's been no evidence that there actually is. No. While we're on this topic, there is actually, if you go to Sportsbet, uh, <laughs> Why are you on sports bets? I just know this is a thing. Is he's got some like he likes betting uh, yeah, about weird things. No, if you, I, I know, I like knowing that they exist. Okay, okay. Because so, for instance, if you go on sports bet, aliens to make contact in 2018 is currently going off at 26 to one. 26 to one. I know it's such it's such lo- like short like that is short odds. Yeah, like because you would expect like this is alien because right, I don't know if people know this, but the, the royal wedding yesterday you could bet on like everything in the royal wedding. You could bet oh. on the color of the queen's hat, whether or not Harry would be clean shaven or not. They even paired it with FA Cup things, so <laughs> you could get like Chelsea for the wind and uh... you know it was like queen's hat color and whoever to score in whatever game. Like it was ridiculous. But I want to just point this out really quickly that the chances of Harry turning up in a suit and tie were like similar odds to aliens making contact in 2018, which was just ridiculous. Unless someone at Sportsbet knows something that we that don't. That we don't know, yeah. yeah. Maybe they're a part of SETI. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but aliens, I think they are plausible. The worlds that we discover, unfortunately, I don't think are habitable based upon what we know life to be. Um, most of the planets that we do discover are around what's known as M dwarfs, so they're really cool uh, red dwarf stars, and they're very. They can last a long time. We've never seen one go off or die, and our sun know, will become one eventually. Uh, it will become yeah. a white dwarf. A white dwarf, sorry. Um, you mess up your dwarfs, yeah, yeah man. man. Grumpy and dopey, and- <laughs> <laughs> Pluto. And Pluto, <laughs> and Pluto. Oh, <laughs> too real. Uh, uh. <laughs> what was I saying? M-dwarfs. M-dwarfs. Um, but they're quite violent stars as well. And the flares that come off them would surely evaporate an atmosphere within the given t- um, time scales that we have, um, that we're observing these stars and planetary systems to be. Um, so sad. Which is quite sad. And so there's this uh, famous system called the Trappist-1 system where they found seven rocky terrestrial worlds. Oh, yeah, I remember that. A uh, couple of... I think it was 2016, I want to say. And I'll it was hugely you. exciting. And they're like, oh, you know, these are seven Earth-like and Earth-like worlds. And they're like, okay, we'll settle down there. Seven Earth-sized worlds. And they're... Yes, they might, some of them have masses the same as Earth. What's but- like the plus or minus on Earth-like? Because again, people forget, like, on an astro- astronomical scale... An order of magnitude isn't out that far. Well, <laughs> like, I guess, what's your definition of Earth-like? Yeah, that's, what, that's what, sort of my question here. And there's been papers to suggest that maybe we should slow down saying things are Earth-like. I mean, we have media that, sorts, that likes to centralize new information, and there are some sort of science journalistic... Sorry, science journalism websites that might uh, push that push that too hard on the sort of we've discovered an earth-like planet and it's like well no have you seen the daily mail recently <laughs> <laughs> i mean not at all oh well actually but some of the headlines are amazing like you go there and you're like aliens have been found according to the scientist you're like no oh, really though really no really, don't, uh, really quickly you can count trump first, <laughs> first australian to be abducted by aliens is also another betting market, and uh, Pauline Hansen is the favourite <laughs> at four dollars thirty-three to one. Those poor aliens don't don't expose them to Pauline Hansen. Yeah, I mean, seriously, yeah, it's a bad bad choice. But, but so you're saying about this uh, Earth-like planets? <laughs> yeah. So you know, if you want to find a planet that's the same size as Earth, the same mass as Earth, orbiting around a sun-like star in the same orbital period, with 
the same atmosphere, then we can talk about being Earth-like. Um, habitability is a huge research topic right now. And you, there's all sorts of theories to suggest what could contribute to habitability. Uh, one is tectonics. And that's something that we don't often think about. And tectonics actually drives the mineral cycle. And so we get nutrients from all the minerals in the ground, and then that sort of feeds down to the ocean and then gets spewed back up through volcanic eruptions, and you know the circle of life continues on from that. But some of these worlds might, are so large and so massive that the pressures in some of these oceans might get so high that there might be a thick ice sheet under, under the water. Under the water. Wow. And then all the minerals will sort of sit on top of that ice sheet and never come back up. Oh. And so you don't get that cycle at all, which is quite interesting. Mm. But that's not to say, like... Well, that's not to say there probably... might be other mechanisms that yeah. could drive that. Mm. And we've only rolled the dice once when it comes to life. We've, we only base life or habitability around carbon-based life forms... On Earth. On Earth. And we were talking about octop- octopuses before. I think I know what you're going to say. Oh, is this the, <laughs> the article? That's the Daily theor- Mail headline. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a theory now to suggest that uh, octopi... Uh, uh, octopuses. Octopuses, octopuses or octopodes? No, they're octopuses. They're octopuses. Yeah. Octopuses are aliens. Because yeah, uh, their DNA is quite different to... Human. Uh, oh, now, I'm an astronomer, and so I'm not it was a, a I, It was a very dodgy paper from memory. Uh, well, if, if we're talking about the same one. Yeah, so this was actually just published in Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology, and it was a massive review paper that basically went through the evolutionary history and kind of pinpointed um, this, I guess, alternative life form start of evolution around the time of the Cambrian explosion. Yeah, they link so, it back to some sort of... Comets ex- and ex- asteroids yeah. coming to Earth, hitting like hitting the Earth and then providing new material to start the evolutionary process. And that's why they've put down... Do you know down, what that's called? Uh, uh, panspermia. Panspermia. <laughs> I did not know that. That's great. What a great, Stop what a laughing, great children. word. <laughs> so yeah, but basically, um, this was a massive review paper and they took a whole bunch of like evolutionary data... And it's it just provides an alternative for the origin of octopuses and those type of um, arthropods, just because they are such weird creatures and they are on their own independent branch of life. Now, I'm under the opinion that it is so perfectly reasonable that a lot of the starting material in terms of amino acids and um, nucleic acids may have originated from space. I don't see that as uh, yeah, crazy at all. I don't think that is even controversial perhaps no. like uh, it's possible they evolved like those building block materials were here but it's also like we know that comets do have these I think the main of... hypothesis is still um, the vent hydrothermal yeah, vent it, yeah mm. but uh, yeah I don't think but I also don't think it's controversial that because like, we had that comet that flew past last year year before that had alcohol spewing off it like these kinds of organic-y molecules do form mm. in these conditions. And the fact that a lot of organisms can exist within space, I think it's it's reasonable to think these things. Obviously, the the octopuses as aliens is something completely... It's a whole other kettle of fish. They were also bringing up something about uh, some RNA, RNA that interferes weirdly with intelligent cephalopods yeah. as opposed to other creatures. How about an alternative hypothesis? Okay, go. go. Could there have been two sparks... Of life 
Oh right. well, that, that that is actually a whole. Uh, that is an incredibly. Or maybe deep one just needed a catalyst. Your natural reaction here on Z Digital, and we're in the studio with Jake Clark talking about space things, space stuff, yeah, planets, so aliens. Before we left, we talked about briefly. Uh, we mentioned that you know what's to say that life hasn't started more than once on Earth, and this is actually something that people have thought about. Uh, often referred to as like second genesis. Uh, the idea that because like, basically right now basically everything we've found fits on a tree on a single tree of life somewhere uh, but that is not to say that there could be organisms that don't because again we don't we haven't explored everything and every you know whatever amount of soil that you dig up has god knows how many bacteria that we've never found before inside it uh, so a lot of people think that we might have second genesis life forms life forms that a lot of people uh, sorry, people in this particular study field of study <laughs> might think because I. But again, you, a couple of people. There's no, but there's no empirical evidence for it. Is the problem because yeah. the idea is like, well, we actually don't know because we would have to survey again, probably mostly deep ocean places as well. Like Jacinda mentioned, that one of the most accepted theories for conditions of starting life is around thermal vents. It could, which has now changed as well. Oh, is it hot springs? Hot springs is now thought of what? as yeah. So, um, man, I can't remember. I went to a conference and it was too much geology and biology, that <laughs> <laughs> and I had no prior understanding. But I think it it's more or less like you need a dry environment to get from the atom atoms to polymers. Oh, okay. So you need like a, a you can't have it in a completely wet environment because yes. the polymers won't form. You'll just get a bunch of random bits that aren't full polymers. Okay, maybe. I, I again, this is not. I wasn't at this conference. It's uh, I mean, it's it's one of those things that is definitely not settled. Yeah, because no. we got we we don't know. We can't go the, back to that point. The Uray Miller experiment sort of demonstrated that it is that you know these biological or these like necessary for biological function molecules as we know them, could be produced in certain conditions. Yeah, so one of the factors that this paper, this uh, published paper that mentioned before the break, talks about is the appearance of retroviruses and that having a potential influencing factor for um, the explosion of a variety of different animals. Um, I know RNA um, has been implicated in, like, the first start of life, Genesis. RNA world, yeah, RNA world. People, you might hear if you people might hear have heard about RNA world before, which is people saying like before DNA was a thing, all life was all RNA, doing RNA stuff. Because <laughs> RNA, because uh, the central dogma of biology, which you may know, is like DNA to RNA to protein, but it's uh not. That. It wasn't always that way. Yes, I know, but also like it isn't that way now. Like the central dogma is neither central nor dogmatic. Yeah, we messed up there. That's well, like biologists. The, it's actually yeah. the original central dogma is a bit better than just that phrase. It's, it has it's actually a diagram that Watson and Crick made up. But that's okay. But well, this idea of uh, second genesis, really quickly though, is that uh, our life could have formed itself differently around in these same conditions, and you'd have like, but most people consider it probably be like single cellular organisms. That if you went and surveyed enough in the right areas, you may find you'd have yeah. two different trees. Yeah, you'd have a t- completely separate tree but of evolution. Like in the like the other point though, okay, real quick, is mm. that we haven't found them yet. No, of course, yeah. If we haven't found them yet, 
and we've looked at so many different things. You know, we, we've still looked at a lot of bacteria, a lot of, you know, archaea, a lot of different Stuff. things. And we, we haven't found it. Like, that, I feel like, is until you get the evidence. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so we've got one more question for you. Hit me. Figuratively. <laughs> Figuratively. <laughs> What's the future of your research like? It's... I'm really excited by it. Um, I mean, helping out NASA, discovering these planets, trying to work out what they're made out of, see if any of them are habitable. There's planets that have been discovered that are huge ocean worlds, huge magma worlds. You have this sort of eyeball world. You have worlds that can't be explained by current planetary models, and I just can't wait to discover things that are going to blow my melon further. (laughs) I mean, there are planets that are more dense than iron it's like well how does that form and you know these are exciting questions that will sort of accelerate and go on and get keep me excited about research can you hit us with some planets that are made of some stuff you're like we would be like whoa like is it a diamond planet yes so there's a, a planet uh 55 cerny e 55 right. you can remember that um and that is a carbon world and so our planet's predominantly silicon based Mm -hmm. Um, but no that planet is has a carbon to oxygen ratio greater of one and so we deem that to be carbon rich and so we think that the core of that planet would be made up of diamonds and Uranus and Neptune may actually rain diamonds yeah I saw that actually that's pretty cool Raining just, diamond. That, that would be really because, like, in your head, you're like, "Oh, we can get diamonds and stuff." But when you actually think about what the that would be like, that would terrifying. Be. <laughs> yeah, because like it's like literally the one of the hardest substances you, you have around. Yeah, you don't want to be just there. falling through the sky. It would be like <laughs> in a rainstorm of glass. Yeah, you know how painful that would but be. But like glass that you, the glass that would break you before it breaks. It just, it just cuts so, through you. We'll, um, we'll jump into your story now. But oh, yes. it, before we finish off, I just want to like take that really like interesting point and just go, okay, our Earth is literally made for us and everything else we've found has not been as ideal. So let's look after this planet, everybody. Let's not mess it up. We don't have planets down the road that we can jump ship onto, even though Elon Musk wants no, to or, um, do or, Mars. Or if, even if we could, think about the kind of people who have the ability to jump ship. And ask yourself, will they take you? <laughs> and the answer to that question is no. They're not going to take you. Yeah, and even if you do, okay, even if you do, even if you end up going to Mars or whatever the planet, it's still not as good as Earth. Yeah. Just don't mess this one up. There is no planet B. There's no planet B. There's really not. <laughs> there you go. That, so that, that's, that, there <laughs> from from the horse's mouth. There is no planet B. <laughs> that's my that's my little environmental thing for the day. Now, Izzy, jump me. Oh well, so. After we, so some people have started drilling some ice cores in uh, Greenland's ice sheets. Uh, so this is ice cores that are created that were formed around two thousand years ago. And interestingly enough, there is a level of detail characterized as astounding by Dennis Kehoe, a scholar of Roman economic history at Tulane Univers- University in New Orleans, uh, about the you can measure the level of silver production in ancient Rome by measuring the lead pollution in these uh, old ice sheets. Because uh, they didn't... Romans, when they mined silver, didn't just... You don't just hunk out lock, blocks of silver. Unfortunately, we, we would love it if that's what you could do. But uh, mostly you get it in, like, a, a silver lead ore or other ores like that. And you need to engage in some advanced smelting processes and metallurgical processes into to extract that silver so you can use it to make coins... Uh, Roman denarius in this case or whatever you're going to make out of it and 
you could actually match up the, the level of lead pollution in the ice samples to various expansions and recessions in uh, Roman history. For instance, uh, there's a great... I've got the I've got the little graph up here. Uh, you can bet you guys can't see it at home, but you can see like just prior to the Phoenician expansion, you get a huge spike, bam, up there, and then it sort of flows along a bit. And then when in Spain, uh, so when Rome has increased its hold over Spain and has access to the uh, the Iberian, sorry, I think is Iberian, Sardinian, sorry, the Sardinian and uh, Frankish silver reserves, they have another spike in silver production as those come under their control and they've enhanced their production further and pushed out. Uh, and then you see, like, during the, the the peak of the Roman Empire, during like, the Pax Romana, we have, like, a sustained level of uh, lead pollution that drops quickly after uh, the imperial crisis. And you, you can actually even measure some other things in here. Like, there's various plagues that rock up. Uh, sorry, plagues don't just rock up. But um, <laughs> hey, I'm ready. <laughs> like the Antoine Plague in uh, 11, uh, hit in 165 BCE. Uh, sorry, uh, in 165 CE, it kills killed millions, and there is a noticeable decline in this lead pollution attached to silver production. They're not doing anything. Yeah, because uh, they're dead. Because because a lot of people died. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this is like it's just it's absolutely fascinating how we're finding that not only because we sort of consider like the modern human's ability to impact nature is very much our own. Send the last, like, 200 years Yeah, away. but this is not true. And, like, this is especially not true if you know anything about, like, sort of the history of the human species, where, like, basically every time humans rocked up to an environment, biodiversity plummeted shortly afterwards. Uh, so, like, but we kind of figured, oh, maybe humans only really have an impact on those sorts of environments we directly interact with. But no, uh it seems like, and of course, this research isn't perfect yet. It's quite new, and uh, the uh, researchers themselves even point out there is a couple of peaks that are don't quite fit uh, declines and rises. But that also could be attributed to a bunch of things like silver production that wasn't moved into coins, because like they, a lot of this is hinged to how much the actual coin manufacturing as well. Oh, okay. So they go, that's how they feel. Okay, we can see that the coin manufacturing was around here in a known period of time, and this lines up with the lead pollution that we're seeing in the ice. But there would be a few, because like our records of Roman history, when they go far, that far back, or history in general, when you go far back, start getting a little bit spotty, to say the least. I mean, a plague that wipes out a couple million people uh, generally is not conducive to good history records being kept. <laughs> No. no. So this is essentially a way to see how the Roman economy was. Yeah, no, they're like, using it as a proxy measure for how well the Roman economy was doing. And so it's linked up really well to some known mm. periods. And then you can sort of extrapolate that out going, okay, we don't know much about this time, but we know that silver production, it was roughly around this level in coins. So we can you can start making some assumptions about the actual state of the empire. Were the Romans at the time the only ones doing such type of silver coin production or were there other empires? I imagine the Greeks would have also been doing I bet like, say, yeah. some form of yeah, coin so production. This is the other thing. I, I, they, think, they think that the lead pollution they're gathering here is mostly from the Western Roman Empire, uh, not so much the East. So yeah, you're right. And there, are other, there would be definitely other people's uh, metallurgical Practices, activities. activities, yes, that would contribute to this. And this is like, again, it's something you have to tease out from the data, mm. and it is quite difficult. Because with those, uh, I guess, rise and falls in economic prosperity 
in during those ancient Roman times, would they be correlated with any other civilizations, economic prosperity? Yeah, well, like a lot of them. Like the, the other thing is because it's not just about prosperity; it's just when you're printing the money. So occasionally, when you'd go to war and you're like, "Oh, we need a lot more money. All of us, we need a lot more free flowing capital here." You'll start ramping up coin production. So it'd be it, you can easily see like you know war is a two party affair at the very least. You could easily see that both sides of that would need to start ramping up their monetary, uh, their money supply. So yeah, you're right. Like, like you would expect these things to also some of these things to also match each other. And just like when a disease comes through and wipes out millions of people, you would expect a decline. That wouldn't just affect Rome. This is a plague. It'll hit a lot of people. Uh, so yeah, again, you're right. These things will be correlated to other people's activities as well. Crazy. That's actually really awesome, though. I really like. Yeah, that. it's just fascinating. It's, and it's like we're really just starting to realize now how early peoples could still have these effects. Like apparently Genghis Khan's slaughters, mass slaughters, had an, an actual appreciable effect, like a measurable effect on the carbon cycle. Like that many people died that less carbon dioxide was being put into the atmosphere by people. Hmm. Yeah. But, Genghis Khan, yeah. saving the environment. <laughs> we do not appreciate Genghis Khan's uh, slaughtering. <laughs> Despite the environmental benefits. Well, we don't know. This is pre-industrial revolution, so I don't know if they were worried about the carbon cycle back then. Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital. And we're probably about to wrap up. I don't have that much time. I can quickly run you through hippopotamus poo if you Please. want. Please. Thank you. <laughs> Please run me through hippopotamus poo. So, um, <laughs> that also sounds like a concept album. Basically, um, Afri- in Africa's Mara River, there was a bunch of fish just like when there'd be a high tide, they'd... Like when the tide would go down again, there'd be just a bunch of fish that had died, and they're like, "Well, why is why is the fish dying? Is it something happening upstream? You know, is it farmers? What's going on?" Turns out it was hippopotamuses, um, due to about they re- yep. eight thousand five hundred kilograms of partially digested plant material into the river every day. Um, and because you could of that, say that they're hungry, hungry hippos. Yeah, yeah, sure. You see. Got it. Um, <laughs> all right there. So apparently it took three years of observation to try and work out why the hippos were doing it. Um, and they actually had... Because hippos are so dangerous. No, not why they're pooping. Because <laughs> like, I, I, I could have why saved... Why are these hippos pooping? I could have saved them some time. <laughs> no, like what's at, what with the poo yes. is causing this. Anyway, um, so what they found is that the feces sink to the bottom of the river. Um, as the masses of poo decompose, the bacteria devouring it also consume the oxygen in the water, effectively deoxygenating it. So the fish are actually suffocating. They're not even. It's not even a compound or anything. They're just. Suffocating. Well, I feel like they're swimming around in a in poo. They they they're not going to be able to breathe well. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not fun. But yeah, so actually, it's hilarious. So because hippos are so I'm dangerous to humans, they actually had to get like remote controlled boats carrying sensors and just like swim them around near the hippos, which I love because hippos are ridiculous. They're like these. These land tanks that can run up to incredible speeds. Sorry, they're amphibious land tanks. They're not amphibious. They can go in water. Yeah, but it doesn't make them amphibious. They're not, they're not, they're not amphibians, but they're amphibious. Like, and they're amphibious in the same sense like a VW Beetle car is amphibious. <laughs> like, okay, let's um get yeah. back onto this, shall we? But yeah, so apparently that's fine until the water like all runs downstream. Like there's a big like water flow and then it ends up in the, the areas with the fish and then they... Stop! Yeah, they um no, they suffocate. 
And I mean, suffocating from poo sounds like the worst way to go. So do they cause like an algal bloom and that makes the suffocation? or like the, No, it's the... just because the bacteria takes away the oxygen. So the oxygen, is, the water is no death. longer oxygenated. Yeah, because like this, but this actually can also happen. Like, this happens sometimes. You have like a phosphorus runoff into mm. oceans. Different mechanisms though. Yeah, but it's a different mechanism because like you'll cause like an algal bloom or something and the algae does it rather than the bacteria, bacteria here. But yeah, how, how are they going to save the fish then? <laughs> Um, so they, they're not. It's a natural no. phenomenon. But they just thought it was interesting that that's what happened. Yeah. They just put pumps in the water and just pumping air into the water, getting some oxygen. Yeah, so the, there's, the, there's this idea that pristine rivers are not supposed to have dissolved oxygen crashes, but we think this is because generations of scientists have studied places that no longer have large, intact wildlife populations, whereas the Mara River is unique because it does. This system offers a window into the past and illustrates how ecosystems might have functioned before human impact. So that was by... Um, that was from... Dutton, what was his first name? See, it's interesting there because like we were also just talking about how like when humans arrive in a spot, the biodiversity plummets. Yeah, and this could be one of the reasons why we don't see this sort of dissolved oxygen crash. Is that uh, the old food webs and chains are, are different? Yeah. yeah. So that was from Chris. That was a quote by Christopher Dutton of Yale University, um, who is part of the team. But yes, yeah, so that's why that happens. Hippo poo. You got you. You got what you needed, and we really need to get out of here. We are. Running low on time. Right on the dot. Um, we're going to listen to... So, actually, I wanted to thank Jake for coming in. Uh, thank you so much to the trio for oh. having me on. Coming all the way from Toowoomba to be here yeah. today. Seriously, guys, big up respect. It, it is a, not an easy drive to make on a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Doing well. Doing well. Um, I but need yeah. some caffeine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what, do we, what else to talk about? Um, Nadia, you spoke about blood. Blood. It blood. comes in many colours. Who would have yeah. thought? Very cool. Um, Izzy? I talked about silver and lead. And I quickly spoke about hippo. Spoke. Spoke about hippos. Your natural reaction. I can't speak. Who needs to be able to speak to do a radio show? Am I yeah, right? Yeah, that's Not a, it's, me. A cr- it's a crutch. Um, so you can obviously listen to this on the podcast. As always, you can do a bunch of fun stuff. We're going to sign off. Your natural reaction. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs>